Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, episode 36, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Why do you think they might think that? Don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. God almighty, she's got you guys coming and going. A little change never hurt, huh? A little variety. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Ah, oh, come on, you're not gonna say that now. You're not gonna say that now. You're gonna pull that henhouse shit now when the vote that you just voted it was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now! I don't think he's overly psychotic. No, I want something done! I think he's dangerous. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. What do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah! Hold it! See how easy it is? We're from the uh, state mental institution. Uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Scanlon. I'm Dr. McMurphy. Hey, Mikey! What? All right, take him over! Get out over here! Get up, Tate! <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatic, mental defective? <laughs> Thank you, Meg. Thank you. I'll never forget you. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and determine whether or not it's worthy of its reputation. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Tom Panneries, and with me is the McMurphy <laughs> to my nurse Ratched. Really? Stella, okay. how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. And speaking of Ratchet, they're actually making a, Ryan Murphy, you know, the guy who basically creates all sorts of FX shows, mm -hmm. is creating a Ratchet prequel series to come to Netflix, which I thought, huh, 
That should be psychologically damaging to all who watch it. I don't know if that's necessary, to be completely honest with you, but I... Do you want to know that much about her backstory? No. (laughs) Not in my mind. But, I, yeah, you know, if you want to mine what you can out of popular culture, then go right ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So, how are you doing? Good. I'm on the eve of parent-teacher conferences. Yeah, there you go. I had mine a couple. My last round was a couple weeks ago, and then we have another yeah. round in uh, in February. Lucky you. Yeah, we did two weeks of that, so my quarter ends next Thursday. Oh, okay. So, but yeah, so it's just busy, busy, busy. You know, uh-huh. it's a little bit crazy. Anyway, we are doing. I'm trying to figure out a good way to segue here, but we are doing one flew over the cuckoo's nest by Ken Kesey, and usually what we do with uh, with the book every time around is we uh, figure out what our origin stories are with them. So, what is your history with this book? Yeah, it's another strange history. This time it involves my brother, but when I, I actually don't know how old I was and I don't remember how old he was. So let's say 10th, 11th or 12th year for him. He wrote a paper on Jack Nicholson, I think, and, and comparing his, his performances in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with his performance as the Joker in Batman. So early on, I mean, I must have been fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Early on, I had, I guess, known of it. And I had seen images of Jack Nicholson in his little beanie, his little cap. Mm-hmm. But I had not read it or, or watched it or anything. And then it, of course, was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list. And so a couple years ago, I had read it. And then I watched the film shortly after. And and now here we are. Okay. <clears throat> Mine is near peculiar or anything like that i simply um i was assigned this book senior year of high school uh we also watched the movie in english class um so it was on my list of books to you know reread from junior high and high school and uh that's basically where we are i actually haven't read it this is the first time i've read it in about 25 years so i guess we'll, we'll see over the course of this episode whether or not it holds up to that reading i had 25 years ago so I also have not watched the movie since uh, since we read it in high school. So it's been it's been quite a while for all experiences with uh, with this book for me. But getting into the actual book and the author, Ken Kesey, who was uh, who was our author, was one of the most prominent figures in the counterculture movement in the 1960s. And he's most well known for both this novel and for the group of people he spent time with who were called the Merry Pranksters. The Merry Pranksters were based in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury section and were known for staging happenings as well as parties called acid tests, wherein they experimented with LSD and other psychotropic drugs. Notable, Notable about these, aside from their famous open drug use, was that the house band for the acid trips was The Grateful Dead. The Merry Pranksters even took their show on the road in 1964 when Kesey published his second novel, Sometimes a Great Nation. Since that novel required that he be in New York for a time, he and the Merry Pranksters boarded a bus nicknamed Further and took a cross-country trip where they attempted to create art out of everyday life and to experience America while high on LSD. 
This trip would be described in another important novel of the counterculture era, that is Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Yes. This all comes after the publication of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was the novel that made him famous to begin with. And our novel was inspired by his experiences working in a psychiatric hospital, as well as his own personal experiments with LSD. According to the 2012 NPR article, Kesey's Cuckoo's Nest Still Flying at 50, which was part of the show All Things Considered, in 1960, Kesey was working as a nurse's aide in the psychiatric ward of the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital near Palo Alto. He was a 25-year-old creative writing student at Stanford, and he had also volunteered for CIA-financed experiments with hallucinogens. This project was famously called Project MK Ultra. He gave these right on the ward, says Kesey's former wife, Faye Kesey McMurtry in a little room where you could look out and see everybody. And as he would look out the window, he began to wonder, you know, what's the difference between the orderlies and the nurse and the patients? And he began to see that they were all damaged in some way or another. Kesey said that most of the characters in the novel were based on people in the ward where he was working. The only character that wasn't there was McMurphy, he said, and of course the Indian, but McMurphy was the character that they all wanted. And you could feel that their desire for this John Wayne American character, he recalled. When he was researching the novel, Kesey volunteered to undergo shock therapy in a secret session in the hospital. And that's pretty much the inspiration for the novel, and it was an immediate success upon its publication in February of 1962. It was then adapted for the stage by Ken Wasserman in 1963 and for film in 1975 by director Milos Forman. Jack Nicholson played McMurphy, and Louise Fletcher played Nurse Ratched. The film also has early career appearances by Christopher Lloyd as Tabor and Danny DeVito as Martini. It went on to win all five of the Big Five Academy Awards. That's Best Picture, Best Director for Milos Forman, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Actress for Louise Fletcher, and Best Adapted Screenplay for writers Lawrence Halbin and Bo Goldman. The book has been challenged or banned several times as well. As usual, my sources for this info are the book 100 Banned Books as well as the website of the American Library Association. The main reasons the book has wound up being challenged over the years have been for its use of foul language as well as for being perceived as racist for its use of particular epithets to describe African Americans as well as Native Americans and Japanese people. Here's a quick rundown of some of the more notable challenges to the book. In 1971, it was challenged in Greeley, Colorado, where parents demanded it be removed from the non-required reading list in an American culture class. In 1974, residents of Strongsville, Ohio, sued the Board of Education to remove it, saying that it was, quote, pornographic. In 1975, it was removed from public libraries in Randolph, New York, and Akron, Ohio. In 1977, officials in Westport, Maine, removed the book from a required reading list. In 1978, it was banned from St. Anthony High School in Fremont, Idaho, and a teacher who had assigned it was fired. The book was seized by the superintendent without review. The fired teacher said that they had put the book on a reading list with the note that alternative text would be provided if there was someone who didn't want to read it. The teacher in the ACLU filed the lawsuit, and while there was a decision in the case, it was never published. In 1982, the book was reviewed in Merrimack High School in Merrimack, New York, after a parent challenge. 
1986, it was retained after a challenge in Aberdeen High School in Aberdeen, Washington. And most, most recently, in 2000, it was challenged in the Placentia Yorba Linda, California Unified School District after complaints by parents that stated that teachers, quote, can choose the best books, but they keep choosing this garbage over and over again. Yeah, I don't know how that. I tried to figure out how, find out how that ended up, and whether or not they kept it, but I could not find an update. So, but our plot synopsis, kind of going right into what the book is about, we do know it's about a mental hospital, and we do know it was written in the early 1960s. I will admit right out that I cribbed this from both the Cliff's Notes and the Wikipedia summary uh because of just a restraint on my time to write to write out a full script for this episode so my apologies to our audience for not um for not working as hard as i usually do on this but uh yeah i'm normally the slacker in this duo well no i mean i usually write out the summary by myself but i was i was so pressed for time that i i cribbed both of them and so this is this is mostly cliff and wikipedia not me so, let's get into the plot summary. Chief Bromden, the son of a Native American father and a white mother, begins the novel by relating the real and imagined humiliations he suffers at the hands of the African-American hospital assistants. While their treatment of him is tolerated, despite the fact that he is physically much larger than they are, Chief expresses a greater fear of Big Nurse, whose real name is Nurse Ratched. The nurse is identified as a woman of great power and control who is bitter because her ruthless machine-like efficiency is thwarted by her naturally endowed large breasts. Despite her power, the paranoid schizophrenic chief believes her to be in service of the Combine, a large mechanized matrix that hums behind the walls and floors of the hospital, controlling everything from the environment to human behavior. Randall Patrick McMurphy is introduced as a new patient on the ward. He technically is not insane, but rather has faked insanity to serve his sentence for battery and gambling in the hospital rather than at a prison work farm. McMurphy immediately distinguishes himself from the other patients in the disregard he displays for all authority. He gambles, swears, makes off-color sexual remarks, and immediately sets himself in opposition to Nurse Ratched. McMurphy verbalizes his views that Ratchet is a ball cutter. She controls the men by encouraging them to spy on one another and participate in group sessions where they verbally brutalize each other. At first, they defend Ratchet, but eventually agree that with McMurphy's assessment. He attempts to assert his newfound leadership role among the patients by requesting permission to watch the World Series on the ward's television set. When this permission is denied, he turns the television on anyway. Because she controls the power, Ratched shuts off the electricity to the television. McMurphy, however, gets the upper hand by insisting on watching a blank screen and action imitated by the other patients. In part two of the novel, a lifeguard who is involuntarily committed to the hospital like McMurphy tells McMurphy that he must adhere to Ratched's rules or risk her extending his sentence indefinitely. He backs off from his rebellious behavior, but he has already sowed the seeds of rebellion in his fellow patients. When McMurphy fails to support the patient Cheswick in his assertions that he should have access to his cigarettes, the disillusioned man commits suicide by drowning himself in the pool where McMurphy first decided to, quote, toe the line. Following this event, McMurphy is told that the other acutes have committed themselves of their own volition, and they can leave whenever they please. He returns to his rebellious behavior, smashing a window to get at the cigarettes, a symbolic action that alludes to Cheswick's lost battle with Ratched. Ratched, in return, remains passive, waiting for McMurphy to make a mistake. 
Part three of the novel relates McMurphy's successful attempt to take several of the patients on a fishing trip. Ratched tries to scare the meeker patients away from the trip by posting newspaper clippings of bad weather and boating accidents, but the men muster their courage and go anyway. Accompanying the men on the trip is Dr. Spivey, a morphine addict who is blackmailed by Ratchet to acknowledging her authority, and Candy Starr, a young prostitute who proudly displays her physical feminine attributes. The trip galvanizes the group, and they return to the hospital to exhibit their newfound individuality. Part 4 begins with Ratchet's attempts to make the other patients suspicious of McMurphy's motive. She manipulates the conversation to make it appear that McMurphy acts only out of self-interest. This assertion appears valid to Chief, who allows McMurphy to use his strength to win a bet against the other patient. McMurphy, however, redeems himself in the eyes of the other men when he defends another patient from receiving an enema from a belligerent hospital aide. A fight ensues and the Chief assists McMurphy. The two win the fight but are sent to the disturbed ward. When McMurphy refuses to apologize, he and the Chief are given electroshock therapy. Chief returns to the ward before McMurphy and discovers that he and McMurphy are now heroes to the other men. He reveals to the patients his ability to speak and tells the men about McMurphy. McMurphy's absence from the ward increases his legend among the men. When he eventually returns, McMurphy attempts to hide the mental strain he is enduring with a false show of bravado. While the other men have regained their sanity and sense of individuality, McMurphy begins to behave like a parody of his old self. The other patients realize that McMurphy is in a delicate state and plot his escape. He refuses, however, in order to honor a commitment he made to Billy Bibbit. Bibbit, a 31-year-old virgin, have made a date with the prostitute Candy Starr, and McMurphy vows to stay until Bibbit and Starr have sex. Starr and another prostitute smuggle themselves into the ward with liquor, which combined with the marijuana provided by the African-American night watchman, Mr. Turkle, contribute to a night of debauchery. The patients make a mess of the ward and fall asleep after planning McMurphy's escape with Star. Everyone sleeps late and McMurphy remains in the hospital when Ratchet arrives the following morning. The group remains defiantly united against Ratchet until she discovers Bibbit sleeping with Star. She tells Bibbit that her that his mother will learn of his indiscretion, forcing him to betray his fellow patients in general and McMurphy in particular. He slits his throat while waiting alone in the do- in Dr. Spivey's office. Nurse Ratchet blames McMurphy for the loss of Billy's life. Enraged at what she has done to Billy, McMurphy attacks Ratchet, attempting to strangle her to death, tearing off her uniform and revealing her breasts to the patient and aides who are watching. McMurphy is physically restrained and moved to the disturbed ward. Nurse Ratchet misses a week of work due to her injuries, during which time many of the patients either transfer to other wards or check out of the hospital forever. When she returns, she cannot speak and is thus deprived of her most potent tool to keep the men in line. With Bromden, Martini, and Scanlon, the only patients who attended the boat trip left on the ward, McMurphy is brought back in. He has received a lobotomy and is now in a vegetative state, rendering him silent and motionless. The chief smothers McMurphy with a pillow during the night in an act of mercy before lifting the tub room control panel that McMurphy could not lift earlier, throwing it through a window and escaping the hospital. So that is a it's a pretty thorough uh, summary. Thank you, Cliff, and thank you, Wikipedia, of One Flew <laughs> Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, and uh, we always start our discussion off with the same question, and that is, uh, did you like this? 
I did enjoy it. Yes. I mean, it's not, you know, the most uplifting of novels. And there are certainly things that cause me to give a side eye or sort of cringe, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But other than that, I mean, the characters are quite compelling, especially, well, I think really everyone. There's not an uninteresting character and, and a great villainess that has been crafted into literature. So, yeah, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I did, too. I can see where and I think we'll get into this. We might get into this later as well. I can see where this might seem a little more outdated than it did years ago. Um, because in, in our current day culture, we are way more aware and paying way more attention to things like mental health and mental health treatment. So the shock value of this is what a mental institution is like is kind of not there, you know, because Kesey was writing this, he published this in like 62. So he was writing this in the late fifties, early sixties when, you know, treatment, psychiatric treatment was, way more, um, I guess barbaric might be the right way to say it than it is now. But, you know, that aside, or just kind of keeping it it's in its context as a piece of, like, as a period piece in terms of, you know, how we look at, say, psychiatric treatment, you have, yeah, you have some really, really good characters in this novel, especially Nurse Ratched, who is, is one of the better villains, um, really, really manipulative, really just uh, made of stone in some cases, Kind of reminds me in, in, in bits and pieces of uh, I'm drawing in a blank on the character in Rebecca who was the maid, the or the the caretaker who basically like kept manipulating our narrator. Right. But she kind of that manipulation and that in in some regard that passive passive aggressive manipulation and then the power over the patients kind of reminded me of her like that type of character. So that's why I thought she was very effective. And we'll we'll get into some of this, but um, the first question I have is about like the heroes and and the characters of the story. In fact, we have uh, McMurphy, who in the in the conflict with Nurse Ratched is supposed to be our hero, so to speak, or he becomes a hero to the other men on the ward. But he is not the narrator of the story. Um, and, and one of the, th one of the chief, uh, chief Bromden is, and no pun intended, but one of the chief criticisms of the film is that Bromden as a character is reduced to a very, very supporting role, whereas he is the narrator of the story. Um, so I can see why they might have done that for the movie because they could put Nicholson front and center. But for the book, for Kesey's book, because we're really not doing a podcast about the movie, for Kesey's book, if McMurvey is our hero, so to speak, why is Chief Brom the narrator? Probably because Kesey knew he was going to have to kill off McMurphy at the end. And so in order mm. to do that, he needed someone to consistently be the narrator for the entire thing rather than have it drop off randomly like the story within The Fault in Our Stars. I think that That's one's the... The realistic literature answer. Mm -hmm. The other answer is I think we don't want to know what's going on in McMurphy's mind because the whole thing, you're following this guy along and for the, you might either find him funny or humane and compassionate because of the things he tries to do, but then it's thrown into doubt during like act three and the nurse makes everyone believe that actually he's a really selfish person. 
Yeah. And so and you're kind of like, oh, gosh, yeah. Why is he collecting all of this money? What is he actually doing? What are his motives? And and I think there's that doubt because you're on the outside and he's just observing. And Chief has his own opinions of McMurphy. And I think he's one of the ones that never really his opinion doesn't change of him. But if you had McMurphy's perspective, then you would know all along what he was doing. And I think it's better to be on the outside of that rather than being his head. Yeah, he, it's it's on some level you're right, and it, 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 well you are right, but on some level it's <laughs> on also, some level no, no. I'm right. Okay, you are right, and on <laughs> some level, so let me rephrase my sentence. And on some level, this also is uh, I equate this to Nick Carraway and uh, Jay oh. Gatsby because you know you have that sort of Nick is the kind of outsider, and Gatsby is kind of the larger than life character, and and Bronwyn kind of has that sort of admiration for McMurphy. I mean, to the point where when he kills him at the end, it's definitely out of mercy because he does not want to see this man the way he, you know, he was. Uh, and then he, then he escapes and we can, we can kind of talk about that in, in a moment. But I, I, sometimes I wonder about the reliability of Brahman as a narrator, especially since there are, there are portions where he lapses into what he refers to as the fog. Of course. And it's almost like he's in and out of some sort of weird fugue state or something. And, and he's referring to something called the combine, which, as I mentioned in the summary, is kind of like the machine that's running everything in the background, which is, you know, conspiracy sounding, you know. So there is this very what's almost become like so stereotypical of somebody who is suffering from from some sort of mental illness that like, you know, we in our culture, we tend to joke about these things that like, you know, the machines, man, they're running everything, man. And, and it, it probably comes from this book, but like, why, why would Kesey occlude the, the narration so often? You know, it's one thing to have a point of view of a character like Nick does of, of Jay Gatsby, but it's another thing to have a point of view and, 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 and kind of judge a character like McMurphy. But then all of a sudden you're drifting in and out of this fog and, and and the reader can kind of get lost in that fog with him. So why do this? Because <laughs> he's tripping on LSD. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Aside from that, oh, why do this? I I think to put you in the mindset of someone that does in fact have some sort of mental issue, and I yeah, I think the fog is like the perfect thing to the f- perfect way to talk about it when when chief brondon's talking about that and it was great when those moments of clarity came in and then it got worse and you know went back and forth uh yeah i'm not sure how really best to answer this besides i i think it's a good way if you make it really obscure i think it's a way to get in the mind of someone who is certainly having a tough time and to make it um obfuscated and you're not really sure what's happening either and it might make it seem like chief is is not the most reliable of narrators and you can't really trust what's happening so i think it's it's a really interesting way to do it because you're reading this whole thing and you're wondering gosh is this a dream is this some sort of trip what's happening right now what can i trust what can't i trust so i i think it's just an interesting little human experiment that he's put down on paper yeah i also and and um i think i think it gives you a little bit of sympathy for the chief more than maybe even more than mcmurphy or some of the other patients because you're in his head the whole time and then um 
he he also remembers a lot of his time prior to being in the hospital because he's been hospitalized since the end of the Second World War. So he's been there the longest, which also makes him a little bit more trustworthy. You know, he's he's seen it all and he has seen it all most of the time. And this is like really important as well without saying anything to anybody and just pretending that he's kind of deaf and dumb to use kind of slightly outdated the, the term dumb is a little bit outdated but you know he just kind of stands there and he does his job so he's very even though he's huge he's very good at blending into the background and um and that that really works as as a narrator for him because he allows he almost creates um he, he creates like that trustworthiness because he's not only until you know he gets a little more confidence, or only until the time is right, does he get involved in the actual story. But a lot of times he's just kind of sit, sitting back and observing McMurphy and all these other people. But is that the, the question I have? Is the and and we're going to move on to Nurse Ratchet in a moment. But before we do, the question I had was, you know, he, he's been in there the longest. He does talk about life before the hospital as well as his father. He talks about the fact that I believe he played high school football, and he is he is Native American. Is his hospitalization or how is his hospitalization symbolic of his being part of an oppressed race of people? <sighs> You're right there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a tough question to ask. I mean, his whole backstory is really awful mm-hmm. with with his mother and all of that stuff. Uh, and it's interesting how, as a marginalized human being, he's being also attacked by another group of marginalized human beings. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting. How is it symbolic? I mean, that right there, potentially, the fact that he's, I mean, I sometimes call native americans like the silent the silent uh what do i call them now i don't know minority. the silent group the silent minority uh, yeah there you go the right That's word, it. But yeah. which i mean look at that that he doesn't talk which he does it out of his own i mm-hmm. i think he's trying to protect himself but yeah the fact that he doesn't talk that he's put in here um his whole backstory i mean it all it all leads up to to that i would say yeah, and I think if you think of of just in in a rough sketch of our history with Native Americans of of oppressing them, moving them onto reservations, and then basically dumping there and ignoring them more or less, you know, unless something comes up. That's what they've basically has done to Bromden. I mean, you know, I mean, granted he doesn't say much on purpose, but at the same time, they don't really try to do anything. They just kind of direct him in one direction or another to do whatever sweeping or mopping or something they want him to do because that just, it works. It works for that system. You know, it works for the combine. So that in a way is, is representative and in, in that sort of way, if we're going for a broader societal theme there. So we have our two like real main protagonists. I mean, we have other characters. We'll talk a little bit about Bibbit, uh, Billy Bibbit, of course, and his, and his death. And then there are some others. Um, there's Cheswick, and but the other character that you really have to t- talk about, um, aside from McMurphy, is Nurse Ratchet. And I think we're going to probably talk about her and McMurphy in the same context. She is essentially a villain if you look at the. St- struggle between her and McMurphy as a hero villain. How is she portrayed as a villain and how effective is that? Because we both said she's a really good villain, but like, you know, yeah. why? Why is she a really good villain? She is cold and calculating. She's not out and out 
maniacal, mm-hmm. but it's all like internal and she's playing the long game and she's seen how what McMurphy is doing and she's got plans in advance. So she can't I mean, she can do little things to get at him and attack him, like turning off the TV, for instance, or saying they can't go on. What was it? The boating trip or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the boating trip. She's, I mean, they got out of that, luckily. Oh, because the doctor helped them out. Yeah. So she can do little things like that. But then there are also long plays that she's got where she starts to talk to other inmates and thinks, oh, you know, have you thought about he's taking all your money? Why do you think he's doing that? He's not in it for you guys. He's in it for himself. And <laughs> and I think she, she starts to score some major victories, especially when McMurphy starts to, quote unquote, behave. And she always has the trump card with the lobotomy. And he thinks mm-hmm. that they don't even do that anymore because the – what is it? I was about to say ECT, but that's not it. The electroshock therapy. EST. EST yeah. is – I mean people can go through that and survive. But the other one is like you're really – you're destroying a human being basically. And so she always has that in her pocket, but I think she wants to have control. And she has it. She's got control over practically everybody. All the acutes, right, are the ones that are super nervous about mm-hmm. her and don't ever – the votes, though, that's a silent battle against McMurphy. All these little victories. So she's very calm, cool, and collected, I would say, and plays the long game and has these uh, short little attacks and everything. And I think that's why she's so dangerous is because she will be silent for a little bit, but she's actually doing something on the side and you don't realize that she's doing it. Yeah, and and there's a question I had about a former patient named Mr. Tabor, and she always brings him up to the other patients. And if I I try to remember why, and I want to say it's because he was like the model patient, and was it because like basically it was just something to throw in their face of like you know why can't you be more why can't you be more like your brother like you know that sort of passive aggressive because she's very passive aggressive as well when she needs to be it's it's one of her many many weapons and mcmurphy kind of sees right through it are we supposed to think of mcmurphy as a hero though i mean he's definitely the rebel figure in this whole thing but is he a rebel because he realizes that there's an injustice going on here and he's fighting a system and he's fighting injustice or is he ultimately self-serving i mean what do you what what do you make of randall patrick mcmurphy What do I make of him? I don't really see him as a hero, to be honest, which I'm sure we'll get a bunch of writers in, I'm sure, about all of this. But I, I just don't see there being any hero. I think he's our main character. Mm-hmm. I think we could call him the protagonist if we've are obviously labeled Ratched as the antagonist and definitely a villain. But I, I just don't see him... As a hero, but you know, that, that could be, I mean, Kesey is certainly not the guy that's going to go with everyone else. He's certainly someone I think that is going to go against the grain, especially, you know, the group that he was with and, and the time and everything. So perhaps he, he wants to portray him as sort of this anti-hero kind mm-hmm. of character. And, and I could kind of see him like that as a Deadpool-esque character. <laughs> Because he does do He's some very much great an things. Yeah, yeah, he does do some great things, but I think there's just the shadow of why are you doing this? Is it altruistic? 
what's going on, you know. And I mean, it all starts with the fact that he wants to, well, we don't know, but he gets off of work detail to be in here. And so the whole question is, did he do this on purpose so he didn't have to be in prison work detail? Yeah. What's his history with this little girl? Like all of this stuff, it's it's just, I, I think it's too much. It's too shady to call him a hero in my opinion. There's a certain amount of immaturity when he arrives to that idea that I'm gonna get, I'm gonna try to get the easy way out or what I think is the easy way out by getting myself committed to fill out a prison sentence so I don't have to do work is a very childish thing to do. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's very like, it's something that like a teenager would do to kind of weasel his way out of something. And then his initial acts of rebellion are very much a kid disrupting a class. You know, even take away the fact that the glass was there, the fact that he went over to the desk and grabbed the cigarettes off the desk. It's very much a I'm going to test you so you write me up type of thing. It's so like middle or high school freshman. You know, I mean, the, the, the fact the violence of him punching through the glass kind of ups ups that because then you because he's been doing little, little things and this kind of like takes it up one level. But even even that is just really, really. Um, it, it's really juvenile. Although, what's interesting is that it happens after Cheswick kills himself. And he kills himself in the pool by deliberately getting his fingers, I believe, stuck in the, or getting himself sort of stuck in the drain. Or one of those pools like that have this sort of system where it, it, it sucks in water and, and right. cycles back out. And he deliberately yeah. got himself stuck near the vacuum so that he would get trapped and they would have to yank him out but he he wanted to drown and um after that is when he goes forward and smashes the glass for the cigarettes so it's part of a juvenile act and it is part of a genuine act of rebellion because he at least from what i read felt guilty over the fact that cheswick kills himself after mcmurphy doesn't stand up for him over him wanting his cigarettes yeah and McMurphy maybe at that point does show a little character growth because he realizes that these men are much more fragile than he than he originally assumed. Yeah. And that his manipulations and his little games have consequences. And since Nurse Ratchet didn't tell him that, he comes to realize by himself that, you know, it's it's actually more of a win for him by having that act of rebellion of smashing that. And and with Bibbit, I mean, mm. he's genuinely hurt that Bibbit betrays him, and then Bibbit gets killed, and that really gets to him when Ratchet says, it's your fault, why shouldn't it get killed? Bibbit <laughs> commits suicide, and yeah. Ratchet says, that's on you, and yeah. Yeah, it's because the way she says, because she, the whole, the whole novel, she, there's a couple of things that Kesey um, foreshadows, through the novel. Um, one is the, the control panel in the tub room. And by the time, like, so when, it, it, when, when the chief uses it to escape at the end, we knew that he was able to lift it because it was something that like McMurphy had tried to lift. And the chief was like, you know, I could lift that. And they had a little contest to do that. So when he lifts it at the end, it's like it, sword it, in the stone. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it's like, but when he lifts it at the end, you're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. That would be what he used to get out of the ward. Right. But any time that Billy expresses a little bit of, of, of pushback against Nurse Ratchet or a little bit of individuality or a little bit of self-confidence, since Nurse Ratchet and Billy's mother are friends, 
she will remind him of that like a child. Like, wait until I tell your mother about this. Right, yeah. And, and he immediately goes back into that stuttering, sort of very, very childlike thing. And she has the... Uh, um, sorry, I'm looking for the, the scene that he cut his throat. And, uh, and, and she... So she walks straight to his McMurphy. This is when he he kills himself, and then she goes she goes up to McMurphy and she says he cut his throat. She waited, hoping he would say something and he wouldn't look up. He opened the doctor's desk and found some instruments and cut his throat. The poor miserable misunderstood boy killed himself. He's there now in the doctor's chair with his throat cut. She waited again, but he still wouldn't look up. First Charles Cheswick and now William Bibbitt. I hope you're finally satisfied. Playing with human lives, gambling with human lives is if you thought yourself to be a god. Which, A, is probably the most emotion she shows in the entire novel. Because she's usually pretty cool and collected even when he's, like, at his height. And B, it's completely ironic that she would say that. You know? <laughs> yeah. What's his commentary with that whole episode? You know, aside from the fact that it's kind of ironic that she says, you know, you think you're a god. <laughs> I'm still astounded, frankly, that Ratchet is friends with Bibbit's mother. But we can talk about that when we get to how females are portrayed in this novel. Mm -hmm. uh, the commentary on that whole thing. Why? Well, that's the gotcha moment. She's like, I gotcha. I mean, I think that's like the main. She has finally found some way that she can get at him. Uh, commentary wise, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. Is it, is it a pessimistic view of you cannot fight, you cannot win in a fight against the system? Oh gosh. Um, or your, yeah, your actions as your actions of rebellion might have unintended consequences. Consequent, yeah. And not on you, but on someone else. Like mm -hmm. what you do is impacting other people. Yeah. Because, because then he like that it, it is the last thing that that makes him. He chokes her right after that. Yep. And he, and I, we'll, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to. Um, actually, we'll go right here, like the role of women. So, as I said in the summary, she is, uh, she's voluptuous. <laughs> yep. And while he's doing this, you know, he's strangling her. He's strangling her, and and as it's going on in the struggle, he rips her uniform open. And it exposes her, her breasts. So what significance does this have to the other patients and what might it symbolize? And then by extension to that, like, what is the role of women in this book and what are, what are Kesey, what is Kesey seeming to say, I guess? Yeah, so you, you've just asked a bunch of questions, yeah, so, so I'll try to tackle all of them. <laughs> so with the first one, what is what is happening there? Yeah. It exposes her as an actual woman, and I think people are super shocked about it. Now, this may seem like I'm saying, like, of course, of course she's a woman. People know. But the way she's – like, very masculine way, she mm -hmm. covers it up. I think in that moment, it, like, reveals that, oh, my gosh, Nurse Ratchet is, in fact, a woman. Because I think she, in fact – is almost ashamed of being a woman with how like much she tries to uh, close herself off and, and protect herself. Uh, so I think in that moment it reveals her for being an actual woman. Mm -hmm. I think the the role of females in here are it's it's pretty bad. I think there's a general commentary. Um, I mean. I don't know if it'd be too much of a stretch to say that it's a misogynist book. I think the only good character is uh, not Candy, but the other one. Or oh. is it Candy? 
Candy's the one that sleeps with Billy Be- Billy Bibbit. Who is McMurphy's lady? Um, oh, I don't remember. Okay, I guess we could say either of those the because consistently, yeah, consistently. Every one of them is like the sort of what is it ball cutter, mm-hmm. the mother, you know, the ex-wife. Well, I yeah. guess technically they're still married. Nurse ratchet everything, basically trying to emasculate these men and like cut them down and be nothings. But Candy and then her friend are the only ones that are like they're having fun with those inmates on the boat. Candy, you know, gives herself to Bibbit. That's that's the. But what does that say that you know the best characters, which is true of the Bullet Eye, the best characters happen to be the prostitutes in that mm-hmm. book. That yeah, you've got these really terrible women that just want to cut men down, or ones that are selling themselves. I mean. Yikes, what sort of – those are like the two roles that Kesey has given women in this novel. Yeah, I, I agree. And and with Nurse Ratched, like, you know, the fact that she's ashamed of her femininity within mm-hmm. the context of the hospital because she is in charge and has felt that she has had to restrict it in a way that is very, stereo, very stereotypical of that time of women and then, you know – as, as you get on in the decades of women who felt that they had to decrease the amount of femininity and emotion they showed when put in positions of power, especially in the workplace, because it was a, even especially in the 1960s, it's a very male dominated thing, management, you know, and she is essentially management. So Kizzy might be commenting on that and the idea that she's ashamed of it because she has to hide it in front mm. of these patients because or maybe not in front of the patients but in front of the other staff whom she oversees because you know she wants to make sure that people have the proper what she perceives as the proper um, respect and or fear of her but I also agree with you there's a certain amount of sexism and misogyny going on in this which does date the novel in a way. Granted, there are manipulative mother characters throughout literature, even in modern day, and Billy Bibbit's mother is <laughs> very much like that. You know, um, She infantilizes her son to the point where he has developed a mental disorder over it, or her had one, and she exacerbates it because either she does it or Ratchet does it. We get everything we know about Billy Bibbit's mother through Nurse Ratchet. So for all we know, it's not like that, and this is just one way of Nurse Ratched maintaining control on the ward over him. Mm-hmm. But assuming that she actually is like that and actually is is that manipulative, it is a negative portrayal of a woman, and yeah. that all the women are manipulative and um, you're right, ball cutters, and and so there's not a and, and the one the two positive ones, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, we're not trying to disparage sex work here, but at the same time, there is something symbolic about the fact. You're right, the two the two women who are who are genuinely nice to these men are selling themselves. Yeah, like they're there because they have to because that's their job to do it. Yeah, so. and and I'm thinking that Kesey didn't necessarily. I I don't know if you've had bad experiences with women. Uh, you said he had an ex-wife, so mm-hmm. I guess that marriage didn't go too well. But <laughs> the the fact that these two women ratchet or he he portrays them as having a friendship, I think 
there's no way that those two would be friends. I really have no idea how that how that could have happened. Um, did he pair them up because they're manipulative? But they just seem like completely different. If if she's very much cloistered and mm-hmm. not that's not even the right word, but you know, like high morals, ratchet to a yeah. certain extent. And then this woman is like bragging about I think the men that she had slept with while Bibbit was in. I mean, there's absolutely no way. Yeah. So I just feel like maybe Kesey didn't understand women too much, and he had a bad experience and decided to portray them like this. And I think you're right, um, and I think that per- perhaps Nutraci actually doesn't like his mother, but knowing that that's a card she can play, yeah, she exaggerates the extent of the friendship. Like, if she's manipulative with the men in, in the ward, why wouldn't she be manipulative with the if you know if she is that if if she's that stock of a villain, and she's a very cold villain and everything, and it is one of the one of the downsides of her character is that she's three dimensional as a villain in that we can really see her. She's a very realistic villain, but she there is not much change about her. There's just a defeat of her at the end, you know. Mm. So she's not as complex as say. Frankenstein's monster or other other types of characters where you know where there might be there's no redemption for her she has to there has to be some sort of downfall even though she technically does win in the end she also loses so it is a little more complex than because McMurphy loses and wins as well you know yeah eventually she'll probably get control back over the ward, especially since most of the men have left by the time that Chief kills McMurphy. Yeah. It's just a new class. It'll be yeah. flew over the cuckoo's nest, the new class. Yeah. <laughs> like go. Saved by the, the bell. bell. You know, that's what I was talking about last night, by the way, with oh, Derek. With Derek? Yeah. yeah, I did my little sequence, too. Yeah, so, um, but anyway... Yeah, one through the cuckoo's nest, the new class. So, so she, I guess, eventually she would get back whatever she had among the patients on the ward, but maybe not among the staff. Yeah, something is lost. I think so. Permanently, but she does sign, sort of win over McMurphy, even though McMurphy is kind of a martyr. And the question I had, and I believe you wrote OMG next to it, is <laughs> I McMurphy did. a Christ yeah. figure? Yeah. I guess the more sort of research and thought that I put into it, there is a lot of Christian imagery in there. But as I first started reading about it and people pointed to him as a Christ figure, I sort of started rolling my eyes because I feel like anyone could potentially say this about any character. And it's it's kind of starting to annoy me. And I don't know what Ken Kesey's religious affiliation was do you have any idea no i don't know off the top of my head it just seems strange i mean i don't want to assume that just because he was dropping acid that you know he may not have had a religion but just it doesn't seem like he would be the type of person so then you wonder like is someone that might not (laughs) put that in there but anyways there is pretty good evidence that maybe he is a christ character is he the his crown is sort of at an angle i would Mm -hmm. say but you know you got this you've got the the boat thing and the fishing and there were 12 i think on the boat and there's imagery with his hands being all beat up from the the work and everything Mm -hmm. And he was betrayed, of course, by Bibbit. But then you just go to this guy and you're just thinking, what part of Christ could he be? And I think 
I guess the best you could say is that he's hope, the hope that Christ mm-hmm. brings and has brought because he I think he tries to instill that joy and that hope in the the inmates and that maybe there's a possibility that they can get out and that there's something good within these terrible walls. So I I would say that, but he's just um, also he did say his crown of thorns, I think, when he first went in there for the EST. Yeah, but but I just don't think he's like the best example. But I think there is evidence to say that he is. Well, and yeah, and there's the martyrdom at the end, the literal martyrdom at the end, form of and and and, and the one person he gives the most hope to and gives the impetus to, in the most dramatic way, is the chief. Because mm-hmm. the others leave, they check themselves out of the hospital. But it was they were kind of always like allowed to leave if they could, so it wasn't surprising. But the chief is one of those who's just kind of there and, and is the le- person they would have least expected to do anything, let alone leave the hospital. And what he does, he leaves. It's like you know, perhaps that's where this comes in. So it, it's not a complete match, but there are aspects of it that. Um, I guess in the, the whole idea of if a Christ figure is one of martyrdom or a sacrifice for a greater good for the others, and, and, and I'm talking about it on a very, very basic level, it, it, it possibly fits. <laughs> possibly. Yeah. yeah, it's not the best one. Yeah. And maybe that was Kesey's point was to have someone that was similar but not spot on because mm-hmm. if you had it spot on, McMurphy wouldn't be McMurphy. It would have completely destroyed the character. Yeah, he would have because like, you know, he is the he is the character who goes against the establishment in the name of what is actually right about, you know, what is right for all of them, which, you know, again, and the painting with like a very broad basic brush yeah, you can't you can't have him make you can't have him behave exactly like Jesus Christ because it, you're right it doesn't work he's not he's that's not that character yeah. and it wouldn't have made him nothing not that Jesus Christ isn't an interesting person but it would not have made McMurphy interesting you know he had to be this rough character who is not you know who is who who acts a little more devilish than than I think Jesus ever <laughs> <Yeah>. would. <laughs> So, you know, and but it, it's and the reason I, I put it in there was because of the whole, you know, rebelling against this system that is supposed to be one that's helping you. Right. And then his eventual martyrdom at the end. Like there are some corollaries going on here, even if it's not an exact match. But like the, the other thing is, though, that he gets shocked that he might be trapped there forever. Ugh. Like yeah. he doesn't know off the top of his head what, that it, that's at a limited time or whatever. So is is why like is it just show how? What do you make of that? I mean, like what yeah, this think? was so, and this was my question because I was so confused. Like clearly, this is a danger, and so he's having fun yakking it up, and then there's a moment when he's like, "Oh my gosh!" He was told I can't remember who told him, but like I could stay here forever. Patients, yeah, yeah, and then he behaves himself, and I thought, "Are you serious?" Like that was a danger all along. What what are you thinking? And so I don't. I, I wonder if it harkens back to what you were talking about, where he he's childlike mm-hmm. sometimes and naive. Yeah. And so that's just one of those things that hey, I can, I can mess with the system and mess with this nurse, and it's going to be all fun and games and fine. And they're like, oh wait, there are actually real world consequences here, and maybe I should not be doing that. Yeah. And then 
yeah, and I think that's I think that's what it is. I think it's like it shows like how childish he has been up to that point. And then the rebe- acts of rebellion that come after Cheswick's death are like way more deliberate acts of rebellion. Yeah, like his his messing with them before it. It's almost it is almost like a class clown or a, or a rebel without a cause or, or you know just some. It is very immature. But after that, there is a there's almost like a more of a purpose behind it that he's actually had some growth and now he has decided no i am going to disrupt things because perhaps i don't see this as right granted he also might be he's also acting in self-interest in a big way you know had had they not screwed up that night with the with the party in the ward right before billy sells him out and everything he would have left that was his escape plan he he mm. he wanted to get billy laid right but he also was he and candy were supposed to sneak out the window before the sun came up but they partied a little too hard and yep. woke up and so it's not a total like selfless act of sacrifice that he has and you know i'm going to rebel so that you guys can get some hope and rise up but so it, it it does make him a complex character way more complex than than he would have been had he never actually had that moment where he realized that the gravity of his situation you know? yeah is i mean does this not i was saying earlier when i when i talked about how i read it 25 years ago and now it, it back when it came out it was this kind of shocking look at uh, psychiatric treatment and mental hospitals kind of along the lines of like you know what we would get in the bell jar as well oh the bell jar which i think came out around the same time or sylvia yeah i think it came i think the bell jar on this came out they're, they're very fairly recent to each other but like now you look at it like you know we i mean we still have psychiatric wards and we have psych we have psychiatric facilities in this country so but the treatment has gotten way more humane in the last 60 almost 60 years since this has been published because we see like these really barbaric things we see electroshock therapy we they don't do lobotomies anymore i think in this country is it outdated i mean what like or is it still you know is it still worth looking at this to see where we were do we just kind of set aside the mental health treatment portrayed in here because this was that part of this time and we accept that for within its own context because we want to see these characters? I mean, what's, what's your feeling on that? I think Nellie Bly, the first investigative journalist, female one, yes, actually went undercover. Yes. In the, yes. As yes. A, you know how I know this? Mm. The Museum. Oh. And the 4D movie. Oh, interesting. I heard it on a podcast – Oh. That was it was either the Bowery Boys, uh, the History oh. of New York City podcast, yep. or it was or it was Backstory with the American History, uh, the American History podcast I listened to. It was either one of those? I can't remember which one. But anyways, I, I just am reminded mm-hmm. of her because she went undercover and yeah, to work. expose like the treatment of patients in, a, yeah. in mental facilities. Yeah, I I'm hoping that we've progressed. I personally have not visited any of these, but you know, I watch fictional television shows and I feel like there's probably still abuse somewhere. I think perhaps also, I think it's still, I think it's good to look back and see what this, you know, as a little time capsule and say, Oh, this is how it used to be. We frowned upon mental illness and shunned those people, but now we're trying to educate and be, you know, more loving towards those people. And we're trying to have better institutions. But I think with our prison, our prisons might be kind of still in some disarray and not 
uh, good. I guess. I mean, what else can I say? They're not good. No, no. So I, I think that potentially we can still transport this and, you know, different setting. But it could certainly, I think, speak truth into our prison system that we have today. So I think it's a time capsule, but I think it's still relevant. I agree. I agree. And I guess the, the, the one question left is... <gasps> Is it required reading? <laughs> Is it required reading? I remembered uh, as uh, you started this after we had said what our histories were. I mm-hmm. did want to at least mention that there's this wonderful Broadway musical called Next to Normal, which was an original, so it wasn't based off of anything. And um, the mother deals with mental illness, and she actually goes in to get electroshock therapy. And right before she's got this song, and it's got like a rock beat and everything, but it says like, "Didn't I see this movie with McMurphy and the nurse?" So I forgot to say, you know, "Didn't I see that movie?" It's it's a good song. Uh, she ends up getting the electroshock though. I think it is required reading. I think we have to be careful, though, because I think with the characters and how they're treated, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about, I I think, women-wise, you know, people would be like, oh, this is awful. But I think as a snapshot, and especially looking at Chief and McMurphy, I think that those are two great characters, and Nurse Ratched, Nurse Ratched is a great villain, that I think it's literature that we should read, but we should also, you know, as with many things, uh, be cautious in how it's presented and don't like hold it up and say look at this and you know i would no i would agree and what i would do is i would pair it with something else in a similar vein if not the bell jar then something a little bit more recent which i don't have um i'm trying to think of one off the top of my head um elizabeth wurzel's prozac nation comes to mind even though i've never read that i know it was a landmark book in terms of talking about psychiatric treatment in terms of pills and i'm sure there are memoirs or fictional works of literature about and by women and um i think we also have the we would have to have just kind of a conversation about the context of you know how kesey refers to um minority characters and things like that but if i think i i do think it's required reading but i do think it is something that you have to read alongside something else or comparative to something else because of how it is a bit of a time capsule and you can't you're right you can't just hold this up as you know this is the book for this because there's been so much done even in the last 10 to 20 years 20 25 years on this topic so you know see how keezy does it and see how somebody else does it so we do have some feedback, and the first part of our feedback concerns the novel Battle Royale. Uh, Stella had said, could I have a few minutes to talk about Battle Royale? It's true. And I said, yes, but let me build up with the Facebook thread that kind of got this going. So oh. this starts with Robert Ward, and I, I copied and pasted it into our doc. He says, on my Goodreads shelf, I actually put one called I – put, I put it as one called Personal Favorites. This is a – Battle Royale. He said, like I said in an email, I think it's really great, minus one or two characters. It's kind of amazing that the author hasn't released another novel, and don't sell yourself short, you're the best host, even in Northanger Abbey, which I finished today, wasn't. And then Donovan replied, ho, 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 I'm going to want to hear this. I chimed in with, it depends on if she picks it, although if you're throwing the gauntlet down, I guess she'll have no choice. That was to Don, like, you know, is Don challenging you? Oh, sure. And Donovan says, if Stella didn't like Death Note, she'd hate Battle Royale, never speak to me again, even though I'm not suggesting anything. And then you said, oh, no, I'm only 100 pages in, so I'm going to kill somebody by the end. 
And uh, Robert said he would like to hear what you have to say. He'd love a little bonus segment where you give your verdict on the book and your thought about how the book builds backstory and its romance in comparison to The Hunger Games. And then he responded to Don's comment, kill someone by the end. You mean there's a chance I'll at least be upgraded to super ultra arch nemesis? Uh Uh-oh. And then you said romance. A couple just jumped off a cliff together. So go ahead and defend yourself in the battle royale. (laughs) So I, I put it on my list when he when he recommended it because he was pretty heavy recommending it. I remember after hunger games, I was like, okay, well I'll give us a fair shake. And it's by Kashun Takami just to bring people up today. It's like twice the length, if not three times the length of hunger games, about 600 pages. So it took me a little bit. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I think backstory-wise, I would say it does a better job than Hunger Games because with Hunger Games, you just get to know Katniss and Peeta for the most part. In the As you continue on, you get to know a little more of the other people. But with this one, there are moments – there are 30 – kids i think that are thrown in there now i know 40 there are 40 so you don't get to know all 40 of them but by the end you've gotten to know a great deal either in flashback kind of narration or moments with them before they die so i did think that that was better i thought that the government how that's presented and why they're doing this was not as strong as the hunger games i mean it was basically a fear factor like let's beat them down and Mm -hmm. and keep them uh docile and i thought the hunger games was a little more compelling that there was some sort of uprising and now we do this i liked that a little bit more Especially with the different cities and everything. But the characters, I liked the leads. I liked the romance. I mean, that was when he said about that. I was like, romance? This couple just jumped off the cliff together. They didn't want to kill anyone and they didn't want to die separate. So I thought that was nice. But there is uh, this sort of threesome that, that goes around. You've got your lead male and then your lead female. The female has a crush on the male and he doesn't really know it for a very long time. But then because he's... You know, like guys, they don't really know. And they don't necessarily get together at the end. Like, he takes care of her because his best friend was in love with her. Um, but so I did appreciate that because I can see how some people might think that the Peta and Katniss romance was forced because it was for publicity's sake. So this was nice that they were together, but they didn't necessarily have to be forced romantically together. And there's nice friendship that is built up and and self-sacrificing. So I would say that it's really good. I do recommend it. I still cherish Hunger Games, especially because of the culture. And, I, you know, I see the Roman culture coming into it and everything. And I do really like Katniss. Uh, But it would be hard for me to compare Katniss, I think, with, well... Yeah, it's hard to compare the Katniss with with the male lead because they're both self-sacrificing. So I'm not sure... Uh, I don't know. Robert would have to say that he, maybe he thinks Katniss is more prissy and our other male lead. So it's I, I can't really say which one is better. I think Hunger Games will still be close to my heart, but I do recognize that Battle Royale is really good and successful. As for the Death Note thing, I don't know what Don was talking about. I mean, I don't like Death Note. It got on my nerves. But I was thinking, gosh, if they cut off these two leads, I'll be really, really upset. But they did not. It almost happened that they did, but it was a fake out. I don't want to spoil any. I don't want to spoil anything. I guess I kind of did. But so those are my thoughts on the Battle Royale. All right, cool. I do intend to at least watch the movie at some point. So Yeah, I've heard. I've heard it was controversial. Yeah, I've heard it's also 
also very good. So I'll have to check it out if I get the chance. Um, we do have some other feedback, so I'm going to go ahead and read through that. Um, Gene Hendricks commented on our on Facebook on Fahrenheit 451. He said, I had a professor in college who knew I was a geek and asked the class as part of our materials course what temperature at which paper burns. After a slight pause, he looked pointed me at me, to which I answered 451 degrees. <laughs> um, Kirk Groenveld <laughs> said, Tom really enjoyed this discussion. You have a way about presenting your questions that makes me wish I had had you for a teacher <gasps> back in high school. That's very nice. Um, he says, however, you have to get closer to the mic, dude, that saying that you come through better. And I was listening to that. And usually what I try to do is level. I, I, I think I forgot to throw the last episode into level later and kind of level the two of us uh... off because you all, I am sitting actually pretty close to the mic. It's just the way, um, MP3 Skype recorder records yep. our conversation. So I will make a mental note in the next episode to throw the, throw our recording into level later to kind of level things off so that we're at kind of a similar volume. Um, and then Robert Ward said, this story is a classic, but I don't consider it that high on my personal favorites. Tom made a point to compare it, make a comparison to 1984. And I have to say 1984 is higher for me. I've long seen the film in the HBO version and I will always come back to the story, but the novel didn't have that magical connection with me. I agree with Tom though. I love the Mildred character. She was a brilliant character. And he said, and now for next month and years. <laughs> I still don't understand. Didn't I get on you for that before? I was yeah, like, why did. do you like yeah, her? I, I just, I don't I thought understand. I defended my choice a little bit. Uh, Gosh, young. okay. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. So he said, so now for next month, and no, a year is not long enough to recover, I guess. Oh, from Jane Eyre. He said, <laughs> after the disagreement over Jane Eyre, I'm a little reluctant to another <sighs> Victorian era gothic novel. I nearly liked it, or at least uh-huh. parts of it. But I'm going to consider Abby a small form of punishment for something. The only positive thing is that there is a copy on LibriVox read by Elizabeth Clett, who read Air. If she is reading it, then fine. I'll listen to the audiobook. But no, this will only give Tom extra steps to surpass you to become a favorite host. Oh, boy. I don't know if that's betrayal or not. but Well, he's my nemesis. I don't know. I mean, it's punishment, I suppose, for all his criticisms. I guess so. And finally, Dario Gonzalez emails us via email. He says, okay, you too. I love your show. It's one of the reasons that makes our network so great. The fact that we can have all kinds of geek culture podcasts and then your wonderful show, which I really enjoy even when I haven't read the book that you featured. And I put them on my reading list as well. And coming out of that, I I consider that a really good compliment. If you've never read the book and you enjoy it enough to, hey, I'll listen to this, you know, I, I will take that. I appreciate that compliment. Back into the email, but it's time that you review A Confederate of Dunces by John Kennedy O'Toole. In my opinion, it's the last great American novel, and with the backstory of the author, that just about breaks my heart. Anyway, a suggestion, please keep up the good work. Um, I'll add it to the list. It's it's one that I've heard really good things about. Um, actually, recent saw, recently saw a copy in a box of books somebody was giving away, and I, if I if it's still there, I'll go pick it up. So I, will... I read it in the past couple years. I... Mm-hmm did not like it as much as people had been saying I would. So I will add it to my list and we'll see what, um, we'll see when, when we, when we come around to it, but thank you for the suggestion, Dario. And I really appreciate that you, uh, that you like the show. Do you know anything about this author's backstory? I, you know what I did, 
because it was on the um, the PBS ran that special, The Great American Read, last was it last uh, summer yeah. twenty eighteen summer twenty eighteen, and that was one of the books, and they did go a little bit into the backstory. Um, but off the top of my head, I don't remember. So, um, so we'll, we'll definitely when we cover it, we will definitely get into that though. So, anyway, speaking of coverage. It is that time of the episode again. So that time of year. Yes, it is that time of year because our next episode will air in December, and it will be. You've got the choice. So what are we reading for December? Finally, yeah, it took ten years or so to get back to me having the holidays. Only been on and so three. Okay, and so I was trying to think, what should I do? I have my spooky novel for the Halloween. I need some sort of winter wonderland, and I thought, should I do Ethan Frome? But then I thought, no, no, I've already punished Tom enough this 2019 season. Mm. So then I've decided on something else that had snow upon snow upon snow. And that <laughs> you have no idea, do you? Is it Into Thin and Air by John Krakauer? <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but the author's it's name a, sounds familiar. It's about it's, a, an expedition to Mount Everest. Oh, no, I'm afraid not. It's Blankets by Craig Thompson. Ooh, cool. Graphic novel. Indeed. And I, I know this one. That has snow upon snow yes, upon snow. it does snow. have snow upon snow upon snow. All right. So, <laughs> so yeah, so come back, um, come back for that in about a month. And uh, as always, you can check us out online. Lead iTunes reviews and, and all those things. And, uh, you know, as always... Thanks for listening and take care. And when that combine starts calling for you, be sure to run the other way. Or disappear into the fog and maybe it'll skip you. Indeed. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two That's two If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.